Welcome to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel, and today we have a guest whose life story could be a series on Netflix. Her name is Susan Burton. Her memoir, Becoming Ms. Burton, was published in 2017. It is a riveting story of personal struggle and ultimately a new beginning. Susan cycled in and out of prison for over 15 years due to her addiction to cocaine and crack. She is the founder of a new way of life in Los Angeles. Let's meet Susan Burton. Welcome. Hi, good morning. Uh, so good to be here with you, Harriet. Good to have you with us. So let's begin this interview by sharing some of your early years growing up in California, like many women who were incarcerated, you experienced a traumatic childhood. Yeah. You know, I was born into poverty. I was born into violence. I was born into harm. And as a child, I sort of learned to navigate that all. Sometimes I say it's like I should have been playing with my dolls and changing my dolls' clothes, but I was trying to figure out how to keep my clothes on as a very, very young child. And you had quite a few siblings. Can you tell us about your brothers? Yeah, I had five brothers, and uh, we were all a rambunctious group, and we, you know, were pretty active running around kids in the projects. We were quite adventurous, and um, I was the only girl. And it wasn't like I was the only girl that was Cinderella. It was, you know, I was the only girl, and I had to learn how to fight and take care of myself. How, how much older were your brothers than you? I was right in the middle. I have two brothers older and three brothers younger. The sandwich kid. Yeah. <laughs> right. All right. When we say that your childhood was traumatic, do you want to share maybe one or two things that define that traumatic childhood? Well, I had an auntie who had a boyfriend that was uh, in Camarillo State Hospital, and he got to come home on the weekends, and we would go and pick him up. And I remember as a little girl, I'd be counting the palm trees that led down this long lane where he would walk down the steps and get in the car. My mother drove and my auntie rode in the front seat and I sat in the back seat. And he would get into the car next to me and he'd be grinning and I'd be trying to evaporate into the seat because while he was there over the weekend, uh, he was going to harm me. And when my auntie discovered what was happening, she blamed me and called me a dirty little girl. And that was just so horrifying to me that I was a dirty little girl. And, you know, her crazy boyfriend was a child of molester. So that was that was one of the childhood memories that really kind of shaped a lot of my thinking about myself and my life. And then later, later in my teens, I was in school. School was a safe place for me 
Uh, I wasn't abused there. I excelled in my classes. And because of a growing spurt and my dress being a couple of inches too short, I was expelled from school. And that was also horrifying for me. You know, you expel a child for two weeks from the only place that she has safety, that she is, you know, excelling and proud and happy. And um, when that happened, I just like just threw in the towel at 13, you know. And the fact that you were blamed for the molesting when there was an adult in the room, so to speak, that had to be just so horrifying. Yes. That it certainly was not your fault. But that stays with you for forever. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. So now we'll go to the reason that you ended up in prison the very first time, one of several. And how old were you at that time? So I was 30. I was in, I was 30 mm -hmm. years old and I'd lost my son and everything just fell apart. And um, I began to drink. I had, I had experimented and played with drugs and had a boyfriend had it, that had been involved in drugs prior to this. But at this point, I just sort of fell into a deep, dark hole of alcoholism that progressed to drug use that landed me in prison. So you went through that revolving door six times, all due to addiction. Yes, correct. And you were able to get into rehab, but why did those programs not work for you as compared to the one finally that did? So I got into rehab after six prison commitments. I got into rehab after revolving in and out of prisons, and I never really had a real shot. Prison is punishment. Prison is not rehab. But when I did find a rehab in Santa Monica, California, then my life totally changed. And what made that program unique? Well, the program was, it was resourced. It had resources, you know, and for the first time I felt safe. I was in a wealthy beach community in Santa Monica, California, and I was presented with the types of resources I had needed all my life from therapy, dental services, job services. I was introduced to AA. I'm 26 years sober now. And, and also, I was introduced to a community that was a friendly community, that was, you know, a community that I believe they loved giving and loved helping. I came from a South L.A. community that was hard-stressed for resources, that didn't have a lot to give. That was a, a pretty hard community. So, you know, it was like night and day. And it's, it's amazing that this community was just a few miles down the 10 freeway. First, how did you find, how did you discover this wonderful rehab program? And, and it was private, so who paid for it? 
My brother Melvin came to me and said, I hear you're looking for help. And Melvin was the only person who was willing to help me. And he said, if you find somewhere to go, I'll pay for it. And when I found somewhere to go, Melvin came out to the rehab and paid for it. But how did you know about this program? So I was sitting talking with a friend, and actually me and that friend was drinking cheap beer. I say to him, I have to find a way out. I can't keep doing this. And he says, I know a place you can go. You know, it's a good place. I've been there. It didn't dawn on me. You've been there, but you're sitting here drinking beer with me. Uh, but he said, I've been there. And he said, you can go to Claire. His name was Joe. And Joe gave me that information. And I followed up and found the place that I could go to. It wasn't like the door just magically opened. I called Claire and they said, we only have one bed left and a woman is coming to take that. And they said, you can go down downtown to Volunteers of America. They have a new place that they're opening. And I went down to Volunteers of America and that was downtown in the heart of Skid Row. I was willing to go anywhere and do anything to try to, you know, change my life. And I went down to Volunteers to America and this woman said to me, you can't stay here tonight because we don't have a partition to separate you from the men. And the next morning, I called back to Claire and told them that they wouldn't let me in there. And the guy said, I've been thinking about you all night. Wow. He said, I heard in your voice that you really needed us. He says, the woman that came for the bed she stayed an hour and left. He says, if you can get here right now, we have a bed for you. And I called my friend George, and George picked me up and took me there. And that started my journey into recovery and into healing and into uh, tapping into my own resourceful self and extending that out to others. Yeah. Now, what I would love to have you tell us is what made that program so special and also it worked. So they obviously were doing something right. What defined that program as it compared to all the other rehab programs you had been in? So I hadn't really had a shot at rehab prior. So one of the things that was really different about that community you know, I'd been in prison before. One of the things that happened, that stood out for this community is that there was no judgment. I didn't feel judgment. I didn't feel that I was a burden. People treated me with a level of dignity and respect that I don't ever remember having. You knew that you were cared for there. People were patient, you know, and I think that's what resonated. That's what helped mm -hmm. me through. But also in your book, um, which I, I just loved, um, read it twice, uh, you had a sponsor named Leslie. Was she a, a key factor in your success as well? 
Most definitely. Uh, Leslie just came out last month to give me a cake for 26 years. Yeah, that was uh, beautiful. She uh, now lives in Charlottesville, North Carolina. But Leslie was also a kind patient, and she had a good knowledge of the Alcoholics Anonymous and how the program worked, and she worked with me through the program. I was also able to find individual therapy in Santa Monica, and that helped me so much to go back through my history and look at the present and think about a future. That's great. It's wonderful that she's still, after all these years, still very much in your life, you know, connected to you. That, that's wonderful. You know, recovery is an ongoing process. And having someone to be with you in that process is a life commitment. Yeah, absolutely. It's not recovered. It's recovering, right? Yes. Yeah, it's, an, it's, a, it's a, a journey. One of the life lessons that you learned at the Claire Foundation was living amends. Can you explain what that is? I like that. So... um one of the things that you are called to do through the recovery process is to make amends for people you had harmed, people you had wronged. And you make amends for it and clean up your side of the street. So I made amends with my mother. I made amends with my daughter. I made amends with my brother. I made amends in the places that I could. But when I sat down with my sponsor and read my fifth step, my sponsor told me about a living amends. Some of the places I had been and places I had done harm, I was not able to go back to. But she told me I could make a living amends, and that was to help wherever I could, whomever I could. And that led me into the work of a new way of life. Right. Uh, I started out with helping seniors in the community, and the state would not let me get licensed as a health care provider. So, you know, I thought about what could I do that the state could not stop me from doing, and that was helping women come home from prison to have a safe place to be. And so it blossomed into something, something really beautiful, and I think right. my higher power for the direction and, and leading me. Yeah. In, in essence, would you say living amends is pay it forward? Oh, for sure. Yes. It is pay it forward. Yeah. Now, when you say you made amends with the various people that you listed, what does that look like? So, you know, with my daughter, I went to her. And I told her that I was sorry that I hadn't been there with her, that I wanted to be with her from here on out. You know, I asked for her forgiveness. With my mom, I let her know that I was sorry for being an incorrigible teenager because after I was put out of school, I got pretty incorrigible. I was angry, I was disappointed, I was hurt. And, you know, hurt people hurt people. And so I um, explained to my mom that I was no longer using, and I was in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, 
and that, you know, I wanted to be a better person and I asked for her forgiveness also. And then I asked, what can I do to make it right with you? And then I listen to whatever that person says they want me to do. And I do that. Now, you mentioned your daughter, but we haven't spoken at all about her. Can you back up and tell us when you had her? Yeah, I had Tony. Her name is Antoinette. We call her Tony. I had Tony the day before my 15th birthday. I had been harmed once again and had been raped on Christmas Eve of 1965. And um, I had Tony September 25th of 1966. And my birthday is September 27th. Hmm. So I had her as a 15th birthday gift. And if that isn't trauma, what is? And you made the decision and the choice to keep her rather than have her adopted or go into foster care. Yeah, yeah. I begged my mom. The plan had been that she would be adopted, but I begged my mom to please let me bring my baby home. Incredible. And I know she is working with you on staff at A New Way of Life and Hopefully, uh, maybe we'll be able to have a separate interview and a podcast devoted just to Antoinette. That would really be wonderful. I would like that. Because her perspective is so different as a child of a parent in prison. And we know, I think, is the count about 9 million children right now who have a parent in prison. The, The number is staggering. Not a parent, but a parent or a loved one, a family member. And that's that's a whole another journey unto itself. Yeah, and a usually child. a child suffers in silence and also in shame and yes. doesn't know where to go. So I hope you do get some uh, opportunity to interview with Antoinette. I hope so. And that she can open it up for all of the, the children that need to know and understand how to work through the, the situations with their parents. I about, oh, I think a couple of years ago, I interviewed children who actually from California, as it turns out, who were part of a program started by a woman who lives in LA. Her name is Amy Friedman. And that's that's actually how I, I got to my new producer, Jordan Moore. She started a club at a high school for uh, students who had a loved one in prison called POPs pain of the prison system. And when you talk about shame, it was fascinating to me to learn that, say, two girls who were best friends since kindergarten had never told each other they had a parent in prison because of the shame. And in this club, they could say whatever they wanted because everybody was in the same boat, so to speak. So oh, wow. I'd love I'd love Tony's uh, story. So you know we'll we'll try. So you made a decision in terms of living amends or paying it forward to do something for women like you who come out of prison and have nowhere to go, nowhere to go, no job, nothing, nothing that's up ahead that 
looks secure for them. And it, it's something that we don't talk about enough. We certainly don't have the resources that we should have, but that was your focus and you did incredible things with, with that idea. So what was the turning point or the, the, the uh, factor that helped you crystallize that idea to open up a home rather than doing maybe something else for them? Where did that idea come from? So it came from a group of us, a group of women. It was three of us, and we had all been incarcerated. We had all struggled to come home. And, you know, it, it, it also came from the anger of the state not allowing me to be a nurse and get a nursing license. It came from reflecting on what had happened for, to me in Santa Monica and how desperate the, the resources were in South LA. You know, it came from recovery meetings. It was a mixture of inputs that came into me that said, I could do something like this. And then it came from a place of sadness and anger that in Santa Monica, people were resourced for recovery. You know, they got a court card and was directed to AA. They got diversion from prison. And hear me, a poor little black girl from South LA gets put in chains and essentially worked like a slave. And no one thought enough about me to give me a piece of paper and say, go to AA. No one thought enough about the other women in my community that had been hard hit from the war on drugs to say, you're not a, a, a criminal person, you're a sick person. You're not a bad person, you're a sick person. And we're gonna invest a few resources in you instead of take resources out of you. And, you know, so it was a mixture of things that settled in on me. And what I thought is that I couldn't take back the years and the pain and the suffering I had did cycling in and out of the criminal justice system. But I could help another woman not cycle in and out if she had a safe place to be. I couldn't bring my son back, but I could help another woman to get their child back. So it was a mixture of things that kind of instigated and allowed me to continue the work because it was really difficult work in a number of ways. I'm sure. It must have been overwhelming to figure out how you were going to actually do this because it was not an easy task to find a place for multiple women and have the money to keep it going. So here, here's what I would love to do. I, I know you're willing to come back and talk to us some more, kind of a part two. And I, I would like to end our chat today. What I really want you to do next time is delve deep into a new way of life, which is just has become such a phenomenal success that you've been recognized across the country. So I know you're, you want to talk more about that. So let's, let's do that next time uh, and you'll come back and see us again. All right. I'd love to. 
All right, I'd love that myself. And before I go, I would like to thank my new producer, Jordan Moore, at the Pod Cabin for our very first collaboration together. And I would also like to thank the Innocence Project of Florida for sponsoring my podcast, and they've been sponsoring it for four years now. So I thank them as well. So please tune in again on Pursuing Justice with Harriet Hendel and Susan Burton, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Thank you.